Welcome to the Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast. This first aired Saturdays at 9 a.m. on Colorado Public Radio. I'm Monica Vischer. We are examining one of the greatest bodies of symphonic writing, Beethoven's Nine Symphonies, in nine episodes. Beethoven biographer Jan Swafford joins me as we watch a giant composer emerge to change music and history. Last time we dove into the Seventh Symphony, which solidified his reputation as a revolutionary with intense creativity to spare. That same year he finished his seventh, 1812, he wrote his Eighth Symphony, which we talk about today. It seems understated in relation to the giant symphonies surrounding it, but singularly it earned its place in history. Jan Swafford's biography is called Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph. Jan, as always, it is good to have you. Once again, great to be here. Beethoven made it a point never to repeat himself, so the eighth Mm -hmm. is very different from the seventh. Could you first encapsulate in a sentence or two how the eighth is different from the seventh? The eighth is in huge contrast to the previous symphonies because it's a look back, and what it's mainly looking back at is Mozart. Think of the fifth as this raging dynamic from tragic to joyous piece, the sixth, this very calm pastoral piece, the seventh, this furious, unstoppable dance piece, and now the eighth is this kind of glowing look back over the history of music in the last, I don't know, 40 or 50 years, going back to the minuet, going back to a kind of genteel effect and it's also a a period in Beethoven's life when he was really a bit at loose ends he was not sure where he was going his health was getting worse he was still a great composer so even when he was at loose ends and not as productive as he had been he was still writing great music so he he found other things to do and one of them was to be nostalgic in the eighth symphony which was again a new direction for the symphonies Mm -hmm. he hadn't done this before The creation of the Eighth coincided exactly with his devastating breakup, the love affair with the famous immortal beloved. Uh, we call that because we don't know who it was. Exactly. Right. I mean, some, it's some, one of three women, and right. there are lots and lots of theories and old books about them, but we don't really know. And isn't it funny that he typically composed his cheeriest works when he was at his lowest ebb emotionally like this? Well, maybe it helped cheer him up. I don't know, mm. except that, you know, we, we've talked before about his raptus, this deep trance he had. He had it already as a teenager. That's when his friends named it that. And all artists work in a trance to a degree, but I think his trances were profound, and I think that's one of the ways he did it, the way he transcended uh, sorrow and loss and illness and just enormous amount of physical pain and deafness. When he was sunk in his raptus, it just all vanished, and it was nothing but him and the music. Is this what you mean, in part, when you write in your book, describing Beethoven's Eighth Symphony as a sort of vacation? Yeah. (laughs) Since the first symphony, anyway, it's the least challenging, the least strange 
It is new in a way, but it is, everybody would have understood at the time that this is not Beethoven the revolutionary we expect him to be. And in fact, people were disappointed in the Eighth Symphony because they didn't think it was Beethovenian enough. It mm. was kind of brushed aside, you know, all very nice, but this is not what we want from Beethoven. The core of Beethoven's audience, who were young romantics, wanted him to be revolutionary. The wilder he was, the better they liked it, and they were disappointed when he wasn't. What was going on politically at the time Beethoven composed his Eighth Symphony? Well, the great name at the time, of course, was still Napoleon after 20 years, but Napoleon was on the way down. And when Napoleon went down, there was this thing called the Congress of Vienna, where the rulers of Europe got together and tried to turn the clock back to ne before Napoleon, hmm. especially in, in Austria and Vienna, a reactionary, terrible police state society was in a kind of state of complete uncertainty. Beethoven, I think, just kind of sidestepped all that, and he went in different directions that didn't have anything to do particularly with society as such. Mm -hmm. And the eighth is a kind of retreat into nostalgia and just kind of a, of a delightful, comic, enjoyable piece. This was, for him, the period of, of the early teens. On the one hand, his health declining getting into moving toward adopting his nephew, which was a disaster for him and his nephew, and of him being really creatively at loose ends, not entirely sure where he was heading, and at the same time his biggest triumphs and his uh, biggest earnings. The Eighth Symphony is subtly prophetic. It, on the one hand, it's the nostalgic look backward, but in certain ways you begin to see the sound of the Ninth Symphony. It's a big orchestral sound. It doesn't sound like the Mozart Orchestra. Even the minuet is not a delicate little minuet. It's a robust, big, meaty sound. You wrote in your book, Beethoven, Anguish and Triumph, quote, only part of the humor of the eighth rests on its surface. Much of it is comedy for connoisseurs. Can you explain, please? <laughs> yes. I'm mainly talking about the last movement. So follow me a little bit here. The last movement starts off with this kind of nice dashing tune. And it goes along for a while, and suddenly it's interrupted by this rogue C-sharp, and it comes in and And the music just continues as if it hasn't happened. And that keeps happening. Well, here's what I mean by a joke for connoisseurs. That rogue C-sharp is an event, kind of wonderfully unexpected and absurd event. And according to Beethoven's sense of logic and form, events have to have consequences. It has 
to be picked up and developed and thought about and, and transformed, and, and you do something with it. The joke is that nothing happens to it. It just keeps showing up <laughs> like an unpleasant uncle at the wedding or something, <laughs> just, and then it disappears and nothing happens. <laughs> he doesn't joke. explain when, himself. He doesn't explain it. And Beethoven's doing something really quite remarkable here. He's lampooning his own craftsmanship. The joke continues until the end, and suddenly the C-sharp reappears and sends the music reeling into one key after another when we expect to be hearing the final chords in F major. (laughs) We suddenly find ourselves going through keys until we've ended up in F-sharp minor, which is absurd. It's about as far from F major as you can get. And something terrible is about to happen because the trumpets are picking up their horns. And they're about to start playing in F major when the music is in F sharp minor. And this is a terrible traffic pileup is about to happen. And as soon as the trumpets start playing, the whole orchestra just slips down back into F major. And then he just has these F chords over and over and over at the end. And he's just laughing. He's saying, yeah, F, F, yeah, this is a F. We're going to finish at F after all. about the big humor in the slow movement, the the metronome. Well, the trouble is that isn't true. (laughs) There was the guy named Schindler who was kind of a hanger-on of Beethoven at the end of his life who told the story that Beethoven had written a little piece about a a metronome going tick-tock, tick-tock, and that it was the basis of the slow movement of the Eighth Symphony. But that is not true. Schindler wrote it himself. Schindler was a pathological liar. What I think the slow movement actually is, is a very Mozartian movement. If you listen to it, you hear a kind of comic opera aria. You hear somebody like Leporello in Don Giovanni taking the stage in this very kind of Mozartian rhythm. The idea of the Eighth Symphony, the unifying factor, is this idea of looking back at the past of music, looking back at his own past that started in the 18th century. Beethoven, it seems, had an incredible gift for melodies that just stick. Can you talk to us about (laughs) this gift of his? He was not the kind of natural melodist that Mozart was, let's say, or Schubert, or people like that partly because he insisted that his melodies had to conform to the material of the piece, to the idea of the piece. So he was, his melodies were always constrained in a way that sometimes other composers weren't. But one of the things that's going to mark the third period when we get to the Ninth Symphony is this increased interest in melody, in sheer, beautiful, sustained melody especially. And that's one of the things that we see showing up in the Seventh and Eighth Symphony that for us point forward This was a kind of fallow period for Beethoven. He wasn't writing as much as usual in these years. 
But one of the things he was doing was arranging dozens and dozens of British Isle and later European as well, folk tunes for this Scottish publisher named Thompson that didn't pay all that well. And people were always saying, why did Beethoven do this? Well, I think at least it was steady employment. There's seven hours of these folk. It's, it's the biggest body of music he ever wrote. It's almost completely unknown. And I think for him, creatively, it was kind of plunging into sheer melody in a way that he never had before. folk tunes in the Eighth Symphony? The Eighth? I don't think so. I think the main influence there is Mozart. So Beethoven's personal life took a major downslide after he finished his Eighth Symphony. This has to be partly because of the terrible breakup with his great love, the mystery woman we know as his immortal beloved. Tell us about that, exactly what was going on. It was his greatest period of triumph, and yet he was depressed and um, ailing and, you know, at loose ends creatively. And uh, it was some of the most difficult period of his life. After The Immortal Beloved, he really went downhill for a couple of years. Friends of his said, we will refrain from saying what it was like. I think he was drinking. At times, at one point, somebody visited him and he didn't have, he said, I can't go out, I don't have any boots. He looked terrible. Talk a little bit more about the other major compositions he was writing while composing the Eighth Symphony. He wrote a couple of cello sonatas in this period that were actually pointing the way to the future for him. does the eighth measure up to all of the seven symphonies which came before it? He wrote the eighth at the height of his mastery, and he was a great master, of course. So its virtues, its real virtues, are often, you know, in its subtleties. And yet it's a wonderful piece in its way, and that's... He's sitting down and having a lovely conversation with you. Yes, he's having a lovely conversation and saying, isn't this beautiful? Jan Swafford, thank you so much, as always, for walking us through the eighth here. Thank you, Monica. On to the next. Don't miss one episode of Colorado Public Radio's Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast. Subscribe to it at the iTunes store or very easily subscribe online at cprclassical.org. While you're there, listen to our 24-hour classical music service covering the breadth of great music from the last thousand years. You can hear us via terrestrial radio in Denver at 88.1 FM and in Boulder at 99.9 FM. You'll also find more to read about the Eighth Symphony, a video of a performance, and top recordings at our website, again at cprclassical.org. Our audio producer of the Beethoven 9 at 9 is Gene Inaba. Our digital editor is Brad Turner. I'm Monica Vischer, and I hope you listen to our final chapter next time for the Ninth Symphony. 
one of the greatest testaments to the power of music, and a cry for unity and brotherhood that perhaps has found no more inspiring an expression. It's the Beethoven 9 at 9 podcast only from Colorado Public Radio.